Hello, hello everyone. Welcome once again to Reason for Hope. Uh, good to see you out there joining us. A Reason for Hope, in case it's your first time, is an hour-long live broadcast which is guided by your questions on God's Word, the Bible. You can send in your questions through multiple online platforms where we're streaming, streaming, or streaming. <laughs> I'm inventing a new thing. We're streaming live. Streaming. Streaming lime. <laughs> and uh, you can send in your questions on the Bible. And we have some guests here who love the Lord and they love the Word and they love to answer your questions as accurately as they possibly can from God's Word itself. So there might be a, a question on a, a, a particular verse or passage of Scripture that you came across and you're a bit confused about. Maybe something you're going through in your life and you'd like to honor the Lord and you don't quite know what His Word says about it, circumstances and decisions we make. Things going on in the world, you know, end times, maybe even other religions and how they relate to Christianity, other worldviews, anything along those lines. As long as it's an honest, sincere question, we appreciate that. And as long as you know that the Bible is where we are getting the answers on this show. That's what A Reason for Hope is all about. So we're very glad for you, the, the viewer and listener, sending in your questions because, once again, that guides along our show. We never know what questions are going to come in. And sometimes there's themes that kind of weave its way and thread its way throughout. It's pretty cool what the Lord does in this hour. So once again, welcome. My name's Dave Robson. I'll be your host today. I will be on all those platforms, just watching and waiting as your questions come on in there with us today. We have Pastor Scott Richards, who's the, the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, where we're streaming from. Good to see you. How are you doing? Good to be seen. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for once again, making the time to be with us. And oh, man. Nowhere I'd, nowhere I'd rather be. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, appreciate that. Of course, you founded this ministry over 20 years ago, 20 plus years now. Yeah, on 9-11. That's right. Believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. that's what kind of inspired it. You yeah. Yourself and Pastor Robert Farrow went on the, the radio to answer people's difficult questions about where was God in all of that and just to be there to minister. And it just kind of stuck around as a Bible Q&A show. And you've been doing it ever since. It was on the radio and now, of course, live streaming and all that as technology is moved on so very cool also with us pastor sean richards your son our friend scott's right hand man all around good guy protege foil enthusiast <laughs> and whatever it's going to be today whatever yeah. it's going to be today yeah how you doing good I'm, my body's adjusting poorly to a diet but uh, hopefully this uh, trail mix or in particular the m&ms in the trail mix will give me a pickup to get <laughs> me through the program know. you know the m&ms completely make that particular brand of trail mix yeah they I do mean, they could just have like four m and m&ms in the whole thing and <laughs> right, yeah. just probably. buy m&ms yeah. silly goose yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not healthy <laughs> <laughs> right but what i like about those individual packets is that you know when you buy a big packet of it your kids can just go in and 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 dig out all the M&Ms and eat them. But with those, they can't do that. So yeah, you have to commit. That's right. You have to commit to the whole thing. But, uh, well, thanks again, guys, for being here, uh, being faithful to this ministry. And once again, we're glad you're joining us. As I mentioned, A Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. It's Friday today, right? It keeps feeling like Thursday for some reason. I have to remind myself that it is Friday here, at least as we are um, live here in the studio. It's Friday. And we're here in Tucson. Arizona, don't be fooled by uh, my accent. We are in Tucson, Arizona, here in the Wild West. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. We're near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway. If you are in Tucson looking for somewhere to fellowship, you are more than welcome, way beyond welcome to come and check us out there. Join us for one of our Sunday services or even Wednesday evening. 
Uh, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com, you can get more information there or reach out as well. We'd be happy to answer your questions about that. But for the purposes of tonight, that Watch Live tab, whenever we're live, we stream live to that page. So go to CalvaryChristianFellowship.com, click on the Watch Live, and it will take you out to our live page. Or if you would like to go directly there, ccftucson.online.church is the direct link. Just type that into your address bar, ccftucson.online.church. It will take you to that same place. You'll see the video as we're live right now, and you can sign in with the username and then be part of the show in the chat function. Send your question in right there. Um, when we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show and a schedule of upcoming events as well. So um, we always encourage you to use our website because that has more under our control than some of the other social media platforms. So CalvaryChristianFellowship.com is a great home base for you. But we're live on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash Tucson. We've had some technical issues there, but we are hoping and praying that tonight we'll be live there for you, facebook.com slash Tucson, or just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship uh, um, of Tucson there on Facebook. Don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that. And that's another way you can send in your question in the chat box on the video. I'll be there with you as well. Um, so don't be scared. I'm, I'm there right by your side. Uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store. If you'd like to download our mobile app, you can watch us on your mobile device as well. And then on Roku and Apple TV, we have a channel as well. So you can add us in your channel store. Once again, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We are on YouTube live as well as we speak. Uh, Reason for Hope is the name of the channel on YouTube, A Reason for Hope. Once again, don't forget to like and subscribe and click on the notification bell, then you'll get, you get kind of prodded when we are live, you won't have to miss anything. It's a great place for archive as well. If you click on that live tab, anytime we've been live, uh, it will be archived there. So if you missed the show or there's a question you wanted to recap on there or even um, watch one of our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, we stream uh, memorials there and special services and all kinds of events. There's a men's breakfast coming up, we'll be live there as well. So that live tab right there, um, a reason for hope on YouTube is a great resource for you. Uh, Pastor Scott here is on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, would like to follow along with him, Scott R4H, he posts all kinds of stuff, some funny things and shenanigans and tomfoolery uh, and also highlights from the show, uh, kind of highlights and short versions of the questions and answers there and things going on in the world. There's so much going on in the news and the Middle East and as it pertains to end times and things prophesied in the Bible. So um, follow along with him for some laughs and some uh, encouraging words and all that good stuff. Scott R4H on Twitter. Um, we're on Rumble as well. If you're on that platform, that's kind of a newer platform. Uh, not live on there, but we post videos there for your enjoyment. A reason for hope, Bible Q&A. And our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for hope spelled out with letters there at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, you will want to use that email address as you are listening to the last show we did pre-recorded. So all those other aforementioned channels and platforms, we are live. Uh, but on the radio, you're listening to a pre-recorded version of yesterday's show. So questionsforhope at gmail.com. You'll want to send us an email there with your question when it's safe for you to do so. Of course, drive safely if you're on your drive time. And we'll get to that question on our next show. So whatever platform you found us on or are joining us, we once again welcome you. Send in your questions, get them in early, and uh, we can try and parcel out the time uh, for your questions here today. Um, well, why don't we pause to pray? Um, ask for God to speak more than any of us. That's our desire, that he would speak his truth from his word. And uh, Pastor Scott, would you like to pray? I would love to. That'd be great. Lord, it's such a wonderful thing that we can meet with you here. And Lord, that is what our prayer is, that people who tune in would sense uh, your nearness and your presence because it is your Holy Spirit who is always with us, who is there to lead us and guide us into all truth. 
So, Father, we uh, pray that you would uh, speak words uh, of prophecy as you define it in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, that people would be edified, uh, built up in their knowledge of you, exhorted, uh, able to put this knowledge into practical use within their life, and comforted by the fact that uh, you are far more interested in seeing your word change our lives than we are in even receiving it. So, uh, Lord, from that grace-based perspective, uh, remembering the awesome price that Jesus paid to reconcile us to you, and uh, that the fact that you, our Heavenly Father, loves us and calls us to call upon you and cry out to you, Abba, Daddy, Father. We pray that that uh, spirit of grace and truth would be characteristic of everything that we do today. Lead us and guide us in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Uh, well, we had a couple of questions that we didn't get uh, time for. We ran out of time yesterday, but I don't know if you had anything to share today. Yeah, yeah I wanted to uh, kick off the broadcast by uh, telling uh, those of us, those in uh, Israel that might be uh, tuning in, uh, happy Sukkot. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles mm. uh, begins today. And uh, the word tabernacles or Sukkot uh, means a tent or a dwelling place of the temporary variety. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is uh, recorded a couple of times in Scripture, uh, in Exodus chapter 23 and in Leviticus chapter 23 as far as a command was concerned and what it was intended to be. Uh, it's also called the Feast of Ingathering because it is uh, the feast that celebrates the last phase of the harvest season in the agricultural calendar in Israel, but it is also intended to be kind of like, uh, well, in a sense, almost like our Thanksgiving because uh, the reason that it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, is because for a week, uh, the people of Israel uh, who's, who uh, observe this are dwelling in makeshift booths, uh, camping out, if you will. And so the idea behind this, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, is the, the whole notion of retelling, recreating, the provision of God that he was able to do so miraculously when he uh, took care of God's people throughout their wilderness wandering. It was uh, sort of a retelling, if you will, of the Exodus. And, uh, you know, there were some uh, fascinating traditions uh, that uh, became associated with the Feast of Tabernacles in order to, say, recreate uh, the idea that God provided water for the people of Israel in the wilderness. Uh, the, uh, there was a ceremony that would take place at the temple where the priest would uh, dump out these uh, huge uh, basins of water. It would literally flow down the street, uh, recreating the fact that uh, when uh, Moses uh, spoke to the rock and then, uh, or I should say hit the rock and then spoke to the rock, uh, it was supposed to uh, bring forth water for the people and it did so. Uh, interestingly, Jesus uh, used this very uh, uh, feast uh, to say, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For the one who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So uh, Jesus himself redefined this particular practice as a picture uh, of God's Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, there's a number of different uh, ways that this is celebrated in Israel. We can go into some more of those details uh, if you'd like. But uh, the, the interesting thing is this, uh, after the days of awe, uh, the days uh, that lead into, say, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, the Feast of Trumpets and so forth, uh, these are all supposed to be times of, of heavy introspection, uh, times of, 
of mourning in the hearts of the people of Israel, but uh, Sukkot, or, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is supposed to be a time where uh, not only Israel uh, has the opportunity to rejoice, but in Deuteronomy chapter 16, we are told they are commanded to rejoice in that particular feast. And so, uh, again, uh, very interesting uh, prophetic overtones to all of this uh, because uh, these, uh, pilgrim these pilgrimage festivals in the Jewish calendar uh, tell us a couple of things. First of all, this idea of uh, meeting with God in these tabernacles was something that the Apostle John referred to as incredibly significant regarding the first coming of Jesus. Uh, in John chapter 1, we are told the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, that means tabernacled among us. And so we see this picture of God becoming a man, Jesus dwelling in human flesh and fulfilling uh, the, the type or the picture of the Feast of Tabernacles here. Uh, we are also told that the Feast of Tabernacles is going to be a picture of what this world is going to be like when Jesus returns and writes this world gone wrong. Uh, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, we are told, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. I think it's really significant that the Lord says he is again going to dwell in the midst of Israel, and that all nations are going to be blessed as a result of that. In fact, in Zechariah 14, we are told that uh, one Jewish feast that all nations will be expected to keep during this time is the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah 14:16 says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the Lord the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So, uh, once again, we see that in the Millennial Kingdom, but we also see that this Feast of Tabernacles, this dwelling with God and His people, is also going to have an ultimate fulfillment in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and verse 3, we are told, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death should be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So uh, really significant uh, festival on the Jewish calendar and a very significant festival because it foreshadowed the fact that Jesus would tabernacle among us, dwell in human flesh, and uh, even more wonderfully that uh, Jesus is going to return again and rule and reign here on the earth uh, during that thousand year reign of Christ, we will have the opportunity to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Mm -hmm. And uh, when uh, the uh, eternal state comes, uh, we are told the tabernacle of God is with man. It's gonna be just a beautiful experience of God dwelling with us with uh, no barriers, no boundaries, no restrictions. Sin and the things that keep us uh, separate from God will be no more. Mm. So, Amen to that, yep. beautiful stuff. Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing so, that. Wanted to let you guys know that. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, I have a question. I say we ran out of time for it yesterday from Holly. This is a great question and such such a difficult situation, but this is the world uh, right now. I know I have um, teenagers who are just living uh, in this world and discovering all these things, but uh, Holly asks, what do I do 
If using someone's pronouns incorrectly in the workplace is considered harassment. I don't agree with gender ideology and I don't know if it'll be a problem in the future, basically if it came down to my job or politics, if using preferred pronouns coming in, uh, is using preferred pronouns coming into agreement with it or just going along to get along? Yeah, um, I think there's two things to keep in mind when it comes to giving a balanced and I guess a prepared view for this eventuality because we simply, especially here in the United States, just live in a culture where the power is in the hands of the unstable. So you kind of have to be prepared for a fight whether you want to or not. Yeah, you might not be interested in pronouns, but pronouns are interested in you. Yeah, yeah. so when it comes down to it, obviously, plan out these conversations so that they come across very calm and level-headed so that if any aggression is going to be shown it's on one side of the equation they'll definitely side with the other person but you'll answer to God for how you handled it. Secondly, um, and this is speaking from my own experience, if these are people that you are working with and they of course are embracing hedonistic lifestyles not just in the trans but in the LGBT whatever acronym you want to associate with, the best way to approach that, and again, this is lived experience on my part, I'm using their language here, is when um, and the individual in my life who identifies as a female but was born a male, uh, his name's Brent, but he calls himself Connie, uh, he knows I care about him. We've developed a relationship both before, during, and after he's made uh, cosmetic changes to his body, but I still refer to him as a he, even in circles where people will get aggressive and violent and say, no, you should say she. My response is always the same, and this is something that you can plan for. I said, well, I talked to this individual personally and asked their permission if I could use their former pronouns because I met him when he was still a he, when he used those pronouns. And because his desire in using those pronouns is to be comfortable, he also wants me to be comfortable and not being forced to do something that makes me uncomfortable. Just like me misusing pronouns deliberately to harass him would be disrespectful in your eyes, I would find it dehumanizing and disrespectful to refer to him as someone when that's not how I met him. That's not how I developed a relationship with him. And you just continue to remind the person who's harassing you about this. Interestingly enough, the harassment doesn't work both ways. But when they're getting in your face about this and saying, emphasis, because I care about them, I want to refer to them this way. Because I care about them. I'm referring to them this way. And, of course, eventually it might uh, poke a hole or two in the propaganda and the trained, I guess, emotional in, in, uh, indignation is the word I was looking for, where you can actually talk to a human being rather than a slogan machine. And, of course, going in set for Scripture, we just go to the book of Romans where it notes, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Mm. Uh, that was coming from a pagan culture that was dealing with these things among everything else. And when Christians would be interacting with people who worshipped Aphrodite and were definitely bending gender norms, uh, their priests and priestesses would deliberately cross gender norms where men would grow long hair and women would shave their heads to give off the same kind of vibe we're seeing today. But the idea is centered on that, is have a plan for conversations that will be unpleasant. If your workplace 
takes their side, then there was nothing you could do about it anyway. So there's no sense in worrying about it. It's like, I have to go out in this thunderstorm. What if I get struck by lightning? Well, if I do, it's not really my problem anymore now, is it? So I'm just going to do what I have to do and we'll leave the rest up to the Lord. If he can give you favor in the eyes of the people you're working with, all the better. If you end up being persecuted for, and this is key, righteousness sake, understand that you're in good company and that God's able to take care of you even if you end up losing that job. The individual asking the question, she's connected to the church, you know that we can find people who are willing to hire and also aren't as, uh, I guess, wishy-washy when it comes to biology. But the point being made is this, obviously in this day and age we should be looking for jobs where people are going to have our back and not conform to things that literally change on a day-by-day basis for identity politics and so forth, but that's just not always going to be the case. So have a prepared plan and how you're going to talk to people so that you don't come across as the way they're going to be treating you. Secondly. Understand that you're in good company if you experience persecution or are singled out and targeted by this, but also understand that when you form relationships with people who are in this sort of lifestyle, this isn't any more a sin that would condemn someone from the kingdom of God than someone who struggles with pornography or same-sex attraction or you name it. It's one form of sexual immorality, but it's just another symptom of someone who needs Jesus. And if they can see that character in you, then you can develop the kind of relationship where you go, yeah, the guy's uh, saying the wrong pronouns there, but everything else about him seems to treat me decently. The Holy Spirit can work from the inside out, perhaps, in giving you cover in that regard. But be prepared, because when it comes to the world we live in, it's just not going to be doing Christians any more favors, and it's doing them fewer and fewer as the days goes on. We need to count the cost when it comes to these things, and the United States has been relatively blessed when it comes to this. You go to Sharia-compliant countries, they'll do more than fire you if you, uh, quote-unquote, are accused of blaspheming the Quran or Muhammad, which is weird because I thought you could only blaspheme God, but that's another topic. So understand that. Have a plan, be prepared, and understand as well. Form positive relationships so that they know when you're communicating these things. It's not one slogan met with another. You're not manipulating them or trying to give off this identity of the magnanimous Christian when in reality you don't know the person from a can of soup. Be a kind of person in their lives where they know, know, all of this considered, I'm told that I'm supposed to be angry about this. I'm told that they're dead naming me, whatever that means. I'm supposed to feel uncomfortable, but right now I'm the only one being a jerk here. Make sure that if someone's going to be spoken ill of, that it's to their shame, the Apostle Peter said. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. Definitely, definitely a, uh, an interesting thing we're navigating <laughs> in our world. Well, you know, you talked about when we started this program uh, on 9-11, these are all issues that were not even on the horizon back then. Yeah. So we do live in a world that is rapidly yeah. changing, but what a wonderful thing it is that by following scriptural principles, which are timeless, we can walk through whatever might come our yeah. way, even more outrageous things in right. the future. Right. Yeah. Who'd have thought we'd debate, you know, gender? I mean, that you'd think that was something that's really in stone. Yeah, Who'd well, think, you know, uh, and, and you use the word in stone, like written on the Ten Commandments. I really do believe that uh, much of uh, the uh, thing about misgendering and, and so on and gender being fluid and it's all in, you know, how you see yourself, you know, really kind of goes back to... Uh, a, a huge watershed issue that every believer in Christ needs to resolve. 
and that is, has God spoken to us in his word? Yep. Because if God has spoken to us in his word, then we have an eternal, a permanent, unchanging standard for what reality is all about, yep. including right and wrong. And if uh, people can say, well, there really is no absolute truth. There's absolutely no absolutes. Are you absolutely is, sure? Yes, a self-refuting statement. But uh, that, that kind of mentality yeah. uh, you know, weaves its way in and is really at the, the center of the gender fluidity uh, pronoun debate. Uh, you know, is there even such a thing as uh, defining what a woman is? Well, the Supreme Court nominee said, I can't define a woman, I'm not a biologist. Well, I can define a woman. It's a person with uh, double X chromosomes. Yep. That we can bring it down as, as uh, basic as that. Yep. And no matter how we might like to have a different opinion about it, that bedrock reality doesn't change. But the bottom line, though, is this. If you can get people to even question uh, their identity, and uh, it's the old, uh, there's nothing true or false, only thinking makes it so, mm -hmm. um, well, then what do you do with Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right. No one comes to the Father but by me. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth, yeah. whether I agree with it or not. Whether it floats my boat, whether it challenges me to the court, doesn't matter. This is what God, in fact, has said. And so it really kind of comes back down to um, the Garden of Eden and Genesis chapter 3, the serpent saying, has God indeed said? Right. Um, has God indeed spoken? Because if God has spoken, then we have a basis for understanding reality, moral reality, spiritual reality, even physical reality. If God hasn't spoken, well, Katie, bar the door. Your opinion, my opinion, anybody else's opinion, yep. uh, Charles Manson's opinion are all equal. Right. So, right. Or if uh, you haven't accepted that authority in your life, of course, then then it's yeah, it's yeah. up to whatever you think's right and comfortable and good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think really important uh, issue for us to work through. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. Uh, we'll go. Well, Holly, hope hope that you were uh, joining us and able to hear that. Thank you for that question. Uh, question from Casey. Casey, you often join us. You don't often ask a question, so look at you go. Um, <laughs> good job asking a question here. Uh, is Psalm uh, 46 through 8 speaking of Jesus? I know David is speaking of himself, but it sounds a lot like he is speaking of Jesus. Well, here you go. Uh, we can answer that uh, without any shadow of a doubt uh, because Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5 says this, Therefore, when he came into the world, referring to Jesus, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come in the volume of the book that is written of me to do your will, O God. So uh, one thing we see here, and, and Casey, uh, first of all, it answers your question directly. Yes, Psalm 40 yep. was referring to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says so. And this can really be a great principle uh, that we can use when people will uh, sometimes, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, overdo it as far as uh, some things in the Old Testament say, oh, well, this is prophetic, or, you know, this is a prophetic uh, uh, inference here. The best standard as far as uh, answering a question, is something really a prophecy of Jesus, is to take a look at it and ask the question, is it confirmed in the New Testament? Because the same Holy Spirit that inspired the prophets in the Old Testament, the same Holy Spirit who wrote the New Testament, is going to define it in just that way. 
if if we start playing fast and loose with all of this and saying, oh, this sounds kind of Jesus-y over here, uh, we can end up really kind of doing damage to scriptures and taking them out of context. Yeah, but even noting you don't have to leave the Old Testament to know whether or not David's words in the Psalms were prophetic. He identifies himself as a prophet and isn't right. rebuked for it. This is in Second Samuel chapter 23. And by the way, if you're speaking to Orthodox Hebrews, people who uh, are ethnically from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's lineage, but mm -hmm. don't believe that Jesus is their Messiah, a number that's diminishing every day, by the way, uh, read this passage, have this one bookmarked, because it is very important when establishing what we call messianic prophecies, especially Psalm 22, but Psalm 40 as well. David speaking said, uh, these are the last words of David, thus says David, the son of Jesse, don't have to take my word for that, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. So with his office as king, the anointed leadership, the representative of God politically to Israel, literally Messiah in a lowercase sense, but also with the Psalms in mind, what is the first thing that David says regarding his legacy, what he leaves behind? Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his, whose? The Spirit of the Lord. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So noting in David's last words, as far as like formal words is concerned, I don't know what noise he made, but I don't think it counted. The point dumb and dumber reference. The point being made is he identifies and is identified in the scriptures that bring up the life of David, that this man was not just a representative of God politically, but a spokesman. That's what prophet means, verbally. And with the collection that we read in the Psalms, not just of him, but the sons of Korah, Asaph, who was his worship leader at the time, and plenty of others, Moses in particular, David's words are collected and put into those psalms, not just because he knew how to, uh, he had a way with words, so to speak. He was identified and tested as a prophet of God, the same standard that would apply to Moses that put him under a capital penalty if he spoke falsely in the name of God or contradicted something key about his nature. That's why these prophecies are in there. It's also important to note that when Jesus gave testimony to the scriptures, referenced not just the, the books of Moses, but also the Psalms in reference to himself, what did he say? You search the scriptures because in them you believe you have life. But these, notice he doesn't specify those these, as general as possible, in reference to the Old Testament, the scriptures that were in access to Jesus and his followers and their audience at the time he spoke those words, what? Are they which testify of me? So when we look at those prophecies and ask the question, does this apply to Jesus? Well, I read, uh, is it Psalm 51, where David says, uh, cleanse me from my sin? Yeah. That's not going to fit. But if, on the other hand, we note these passages that are later verified in the New Testament, Hebrews is a good example in reference to that, because, what, 75% of the book is just quotes from the Old Testament, then that is going to make your case. So is Psalm 40 about Jesus? Yeah, along with most of the Psalms. Is the point of emphasis about Jesus? You can verify that with the example recorded in the Word, not what I think about Jesus, but in the Word, 
is about Jesus himself. And then with that in mind, so was this a prophecy? Well, it came from a prophet, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. yeah. Uh, again, just as an example of the fact that, uh, first of all, you have to have some of the, the prophetic gift. Uh, you also have to have uh, New Testament confirmation. But you know, really important because there are some Old Testament passages that do sound Jesus-y, for lack of a better term. Uh, one of them is Zechariah chapter 13, uh, where it says, uh, and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And then he will answer, those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Uh, and I've heard sermons built on the idea that this is a picture of the scourging and the sufferings of Jesus and, mm. and so on. Well, there's a big problem with that. First of all, there's no New Testament citation of that. Mm. Uh, you would think if this was a prophecy about Jesus' suffering, especially in Matthew, who just likes to uh, just literally pepper his account with this was written, this happened, so what was written was fulfilled. Don't see it. Uh, some people say, well, it's an argument from silence. Well, I think it's pretty powerful silence because, uh, you know, again, God tends to show us these prophecies being fulfilled with these New Testament fulfillments. But, but even in the near context, Zechariah 13 and verse 4 says, and it shall be in that day that every prophet shall be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. So this is a context talking about a false prophet, mm, an yep, individual yeah. that is dressing up like a prophet, presenting themselves as a prophet, but not a prophet. Mm. But he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle for my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? He will answer, these are the ones I was wounded in the house of my friends. What's being referred to there was the same practice that we see the prophets of Baal uh, going through on Mount Carmel, when it didn't appear that Baal was immediately reacting to their cries and entreaties to consume the sacrifice by fire from heaven to get Baal's attention, they would begin to cut themselves. And the scripture says that was the manner of their worship uh, before Baal. And so the, the wounds on this guy's arms that are being questioned, someone's saying, boy, you sure, didn't I see you false prophesying? You sure seem like a false prophet to me. <laughs> oh, no, 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 not me. Well, what are these lacerations all over you? Well, oh, I've got to brawl at my friend's house. You know, that, that's really what the context of that passage says. Oh. So it does sound, if you just have that one passage, uh, very Jesus-y. Uh, but the context pretty much excludes it. Mm -hmm. No New Testament uh, verification on that. Probably get some letters from people who say, well, my pastor taught this and this and this. Well, yeah. you know, once again, uh, if you can come up with a convincing uh, series of proofs to show me that this is, in fact, uh, a prophecy, I'll be happy to change the opinion. But that's why it is so important that we don't go overboard. We don't have to go overboard. There's over 103 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled at his first coming. Mm. We don't have to fold, spindle, and mutilate a few more to get it to fit. Yeah, right? and if even if we're going to meet on the ground of neutrality and say, well, it could, it could not be what's an actual prophecy that every Christian should agree on? Psalm 22. That's directly referenced yeah. during the scourging. So <laughs> Isaiah 53. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, you know, chastisement for his peace on him, and by his wounds, literally by his scourgings, we are healed. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I don't think you have to dig into this to find it. Right. Yep. Let's so, see that. Yeah.
Great. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks, Casey. So in short, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but we don't do anything short around here. Do that's, we? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But yeah, good job uh, spotting that. Um, that something was fishy about that, uh, that passage there. Um, question from T-Town Treeman. Uh, hello, I heard Frank Turek mention that Daniel lied. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cannot find this passage. Is it something you know about? Would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Jets. Yeah, for those not uh, in on the joke, Frank Turek is uh, one of the co-founders of a ministry called Cross-Examined, which is, by the way, a great resource when it comes to engaging with atheists, secularists, and overall skeptics. Uh, just yesterday, we recommended yeah. a book that he co-authored, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. The problem is that just like with every human being, you don't take everything they say as infallible. Um, Frank Turek is of the school where he basically will secede all grounds of the Bible, of Christianese, if you will, and essentially plays on the terms of atheists in order for them to understand you're a lot closer to God than you realize. Now there's a strength to this approach in that it was something modeled in the book of Acts where they didn't go you know, directly into the Old Testament prophecies like they did with the Hebrews, but when Paul and Barnabas were speaking to a Gentile, a Greek audience at the uh, Aropagus. Aropagus, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm not used to these vowels in that order. (laughs) They started in Genesis, and obviously just meeting on terms that they were familiar with, they didn't expect their audiences to know the Bible. Now that's the strength. The weakness is, if you stay in that position, you preach that this is the way that you're to reach non church people. And you even carry that into churches and start, and this is 100% true, unfortunately, this happened just last week, starts castigating pastors for telling people that Jesus loves them and using terms that they aren't going to be familiar with or understand, as if, you know, you could explain that and further inquiry then you start to alienate people that need to be on your side, that are called the different areas of ministry. Uh, This example on Frank Turek's part is what we call not just the effects of what's called the documentary hypothesis, but the pious fraud theory in reference to Daniel. It's uh, one of a number of theories, quote-unquote, that was put forward by the German school of uh, Tübingen and Wellhausen in the late 1900s, I think it was, as a critique of Christianity. 1800, yeah. 1800, yeah. yeah. Uh, but 19th century yeah. was what was yeah. in my mind. Yeah. But um, basically a critique of all the things that were going around regarding Christianity at the time, and dismissing it because, A, we didn't have nearly as much data and museum pieces to verify it back then, but B, the church had gotten kind of complacent and taken for granted that the church is just respected, and so the atheist movement just came at them full force, and we had to do a bit of homework. Frank Turek is a good example of a positive response to that, but also a negative because he ends up granting more than Christianity itself would allow. Uh, The claim of Daniel being a pious fraud is, of course, stating that he couldn't have known the prophecies that were spoken of regarding in such vivid detail the succession of Alexander the Great's kingdom being cut off as the primary figurehead, passing it to four who became two who became one, and that one figurehead would persecute the Hebrews. Uh, Regarding the dates that were laid out uh, in Daniel chapter 9, the 
famous Palm Sunday prophecy and so forth because there's wiggle room as far as how we handle the dates and calendars, that there's two separate branches as to whether you use the Babylonian calendar or the Persian calendar. And people say, well, because Jesus's crucifixion needed to happen in either 30 or 33 AD to get the moon right because of the math that's done here. Notice, not because of the text, because of the math that's done here regarding those days, that theory just doesn't fit. This was a false prophecy, which isn't true. The calculations may be incorrect, but the text is verifiable, and the history is, in fact, something that we can verify as well. Jesus did fulfill not just Daniel 9, but also another interesting passage in Zechariah regarding the donkey's colt. You can look that up. But um, his granting of these things are an attempt of what we talked about yesterday, of giving concessions so that you have a longer conversation with what he calls as important. The problem is disregarding or throwing out the Bible in order to get an audience with people who are being convinced to believe the claims in the Bible is a non-starter, and this would be an example of that. When we talk about people who are quote-unquote false teachers or Christians in name only. We only divide fellowship over four fundamental details. The first is that there is one and only one God. The second is that he has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. We also believe that salvation is by grace through faith, bar none. But the fourth, and this is unfortunately becoming more and more prevalent in circles like Frank Turek and the company that he keeps. Michael Heiser and Andy Stanley are people who have readily been invited, and regularly, excuse me, invited to participate and to espouse their heretical views on this program. The authority of Scripture, that we find out the first three through the fourth. And if you throw this out, then this suddenly becomes, well, that's just a thing we Christians believe. And what you're ultimately trying to lead people to is a non-starter. I've written jokes about this in jest, but here's the point. I'd make a distinction between Frank Turek as a false teacher and a bad one, just like I would with Michael Heiser. I'd definitely say Andy Stanley's a heretic, but that's another conversation altogether. The company that he keeps, the sources intellectually that he learns from, and the people that he trusts and information that he espouses, just like, for example, you would. If you were sharing this information, you trusted us to do it, and we made an error. You'd get called out on it because of our mistake, not yours. Frank Turek's essentially a victim of this in that he's holding up the voices of big minds that he trusts who have made a decided error in this sort of field and among others, the documentary hypothesis, the pious fraud theory and others are coming from a, an anti-God worldview. And it's one that he believes if he concedes, he can win more to Christ. But not necessarily that he believes it, but that he's not going to defend it. Yeah, and that's the point, is you end up conceding the ground you're trying to win them over to. Mm -hmm. And there are things that, of course, you can concede, you know, conversations about, well, is the Earth uh, billions of years old, or was it made uh, 7,000 years ago, like you bigoted anti-science Christians try to believe? I understand him saying, can we get back to the gospel? But if, on the other hand, you're in conversation with people saying, well, this is a false prophecy, and he goes, yeah, it might be, but Jesus still rose from the dead, no, no, that, that is, uh, that is a not a uh, red flag on his part, but you're handing off something that disqualified where yeah. you got them from. Yeah, um, you know, again, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the person who's joining us on uh, YouTube, I don't know if uh, he cited 
a particular passage in Daniel uh, where he said that Daniel himself lied uh, or whether he was saying that uh, Daniel got prophecies wrong, uh, you know, or you shouldn't... Uh, the book really, of Daniel's a fraud. You shouldn't really, you know, look at this as a, you know, a document from the 5th century uh, BC. It's really, you know, something that was late, later written and, and so on. Um, I don't know enough about Frank Turek's uh, writing or the message that you shared, that he, he shared that with you, to be able to say uh, specifically uh, what he is talking about. But I can tell you that I have taught through the book of Daniel a number of different times uh, in the history of our church. And uh, one thing that you can say about Daniel is, you know, Daniel was a human being like the rest of us. He didn't walk on water. He wasn't sinless. He'd be the first person to tell you that he wasn't. Mm -hmm. But there's no example that we find in Scripture that shows Daniel uh, as being anything other than a man of rock-solid integrity, even if it was going to cost him his life. Right. Uh, the, the famous incident with the lion's den happened because when uh, the, the Persians, Medo-Persians took over the Babylonian Empire, uh, Daniel was able to distinguish himself before the uh, new proprietors of the empire. And uh, King Cyrus, uh, or the, uh, the uh, king of uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, was thinking about putting him in charge of the whole thing, making him the prime minister. And so his enemies said, we will find nothing against this man unless we find it in uh, the case of his devotion to his God. And so they noted that Daniel prayed facing Jerusalem three times a day. Uh, and uh, so they came to the king and they said, hey, you know, Darius, uh, new guy on the block here, great way to uh, kind of uh, burnish your cred with people, show them you're generous, uh, pass uh, an anti-prayer initiative uh, so that no man can ask anything of any man or God uh, apart from you for 30 days. And then you'll give them all the goodies and they'll, they'll really like you for that. Well, the ego of a Middle Eastern king, oh, that, that's a great idea. Didn't even think through the implications. Now, Allah, the Medes, and the Persians was one that could not be rescinded or altered. If you made a law, you better really think it through. Wow. But the king didn't think it through. And mm -hmm. as soon as the law was signed, they came running in and saying, Daniel doesn't pay any attention to you, king. He's still praying to his God three times a day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Daniel, when he knew the law was passed, uh, didn't alter his prayer life one bit. Mm -hmm. He didn't start using people's pronouns. So, you know, when you talk about Daniel, um, you know, when we lie, <laughs> what are we trying to do? We're trying to grease the skids in life. We're trying to get ourselves out of precarious positions or, or uh, saving face or, or, or trying to uh, you know, manipulate people and things like this. In no way, shape, or form was Daniel uh, trying to do that yeah. in any of those circumstances. In fact, it was just the opposite. He wasn't saving face because he was doing something that flew in the face of the king. He wasn't enhancing his prospects for promotion because, uh, you know, again, they can say, well, this guy's a rebel. He doesn't even follow the law. He wasn't even uh, promoting uh, his possibility to live because the penalty for not following through this was being tossed in a lion's den. Right. Well, the king kind of realized he'd been had and said, you know, may your God whom you worship continually preserve you and uh, said the king didn't sleep all night and you know, didn't you get his usual goodies and everything like that. Yeah. And as soon as it was daylight came and he says, Daniel is the God who you continually pray to preserve you. And he said, yes, he has, Lord. And he shut the mouth of the lions 
uh, because uh, he found uh, no iniquity in me in all of this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think to, I would have to hear exactly what was said here, but, you know, to say that Daniel lied yep. or was slippery with his ethics flies in the face of everything, really, from start to finish, we see yep. uh, regarding Daniel from the very get go, as far as wanting to keep himself kosher and not eat the king's food right. uh, and so on. Speaking truth to power, you know, even telling. King Nebuchadnezzar, when he had the dream about you know the tree that was chopped down and and so on, uh, King made this happen to your enemies and not to you. But here it is, uh, you know, God God's going to cut you down like Johnny Cash once sang, and you're going to lose your sanity and think you're a cow for seven years, yep. you know. But then when that's over, you're going to be restored, yep. you know. I, I mean, that's not what you would call uh, a, a real uh, great way to promote yourself in the eyes of the corporate ladder. Yeah. Great way to get your head lopped off. Yeah. But, you know, if Daniel was going to lie, you would think he would lie there. Right. Uh, if Daniel was going to play fast and loose with his ethics, you think he would have done so with the No Prayer Initiative. If Daniel was going to be a person who, from the very get go, was going to, well, you got to go along to get along, you know, and it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, uh, he would have not maintained his integrity. Uh, with the the kosher laws right. so uh, if the question is did Daniel lie in his ministry career I don't know what he did outside of the 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 things that we see recorded, uh, recorded yeah. in the book of Daniel but uh, we do not see any instance of Daniel uh, engaging in prevaric prevarication telling lies yeah. so you know I, I kind of feel like I'm standing up for the guy, uh, but uh, I would like to have that same benefit of the doubt extended to me yeah. <laughs> uh, if uh, if someone was going to say, well, you know, that guy's got he lies all yeah. the time. Well, I've lied before, probably will lie again before I see the Lord again, but uh, hopefully not when I'm teaching, you know, <laughs> right. you know when, when, when I'm sharing God's word. So, uh, you know, very, very important. Uh, that and this is just a word to you out there it might be pastors uh, sometimes we'll say things I think for shock value mm -hmm. uh, you know or to get people's attention in messages or we'll hear somebody ooh man that really rattled their cage and I, I like to provoke them and get them to think well you know we had that incident earlier uh, where that uh, Corey Asbury uh, did the joke or maybe it wasn't a joke about a vision of Jesus and even if we're going to cut the guy the greatest break possible making light of people's prophetic encounters with Jesus and, you know, the, the gospel and, and so on, uh, kind of pushing it, Yeah, you know, so got to be very careful. Uh, let not many of you become teachers, James wrote, because as such will incur stricter judgment. So yeah. want to give uh, Frank Turk the doubt, benefit of the doubt because we didn't hear exactly what he said. Can't mm -hmm. comment exactly on what point he was making. But if he was buying into the late dating of Daniel or that Daniel was a pious fraud in the sense of getting around, having to wrestle through that with non-believers and getting him back to the gospel, um, you know, okay, everybody's got their own ministry before the Lord. Uh, I've said it before, uh, as a former non-believer, if I felt like a believer was saying, well, yeah, there's all these things wrong, but look over here. I'd be going, well, if the rest of it's wrong, why should I believe what you're telling me over here? Mm. You know, I think it's ultimately self-defeating. That's just me. Yeah. I'm a pastor. I don't 
uh, speak on college campus to atheists uh, anymore. I used to, but yeah. Are there uh, examples in the the Bible of anyone that lied and it was a a good thing? I think of you know accounts of people lying and it was not good. But was it did anyone, was anyone called to mislead and? You have to be really stingy about a lie as opposed to withholding the truth. The best example mm. was when the Lord told Samuel, "Don't tell Saul where you're, uh, what you're doing, just where you're going." And that was in First Samuel. Or in Rahab, yeah. Who? Well, she wasn't commended or commanded by the Lord to do it. Yeah, yeah. She so. was only commended for hiding the spies. Yeah. yeah. So not telling the whole truth, but not necessarily lying. Yeah. Just yeah. Uh, Saul's a paranoid tyrant. He's going to kill me if he finds out I'm going to be uh, stamping the contract of his successor here. God said, just tell him you're going to Bethlehem. Don't tell him what you're doing. Yeah. And people would say, that's a lie. And I'd say, you're, I won't say it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I yeah. guess I'm withholding my opinions. Is that a lie? Yeah. The uh, the thing about Rahab that always comes up is from James chapter 2. It says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Now, notice it doesn't say that she was justified by works when she lied to the people who came looking for them. Uh, it says, no, she was justified when she, as a thoroughly Canaanite woman, who had very little uh, detail work as far as what it meant to know the true and living God was concerned. Apparently enough, she, she called him the covenant name of God. Yeah, she used God's name. She also said, uh, we know all about what God did with the Egyptians and the crossing of the Red Sea, and we know he's Sion come here, and, yeah. Yeah, and all of this. And, uh, you know, remember me and my family when you guys, I, I know you're going to take the city, remember me and my family when you do. And so they say, well, tie this, uh, you know, Scarlet thread, scarlet yeah. thread, and you know you'll be uh, you'll be left alone. Yep. So you know a very a, a very close <laughs> analysis of this doesn't say that God commended her lying. It says that God commended her for putting her life on the line because if these guys found out she was covering up, you know she would have been uh, short work. But uh, only that she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a big question, not much time, so so uh, yeah, all the best. Get to it. All the best with this. Um, this is a great question. Is it a bigger assumption that there is a God than there is no God? So yeah. is it bigger to assume there isn't a God, or bigger to assume that there is? Yeah, by bigger, I think what's meant is do you have to make more assumptions. Yeah, do you have to strain credulity yeah. uh, to believe there is a God than if there's not? Well, understand that in order to believe there is a God, not the Christian God, not the Buddhist or you know whatever, the concept of a creator, I, an yeah. absolute being, is only going to require the assumption of the law of causality, that whatever starts had a starter, <laughs> and that, of course, the law of thermodynamics, that this universe definitely had a starting point because of the breakdown of energy at its peak. Yep. Otherwise, we would have exhausted energy by now. No one, well, I'm sure some moron in his basement on Reddit believes the universe is still eternal, but we know with the Hubble Space Telescope's discoveries, the redshift, that there is, in fact, a starting point to the universe, and we can see the after effects of its introduction. So if energy's breaking down, unless we've been here, uh, you, you got a, a phone, right? With uh, If it's Apple, I'm sure it'll go out in two seconds, right? But if you got a battery life, if it's been on for an <laughs> infinite amount of time, it'd be at zero, right? Yeah. But if it's 
a finite amount of energy and you're at, say, 30 or 40 percent, that means that the amount of time has passed. That's the math they're doing there. So that's all you have to assume for there to be a god, that the universe had a start in point and a start er. That's all. And as far as the concept of god is concerned, if you want a personal god, you have to make more not assumptions but come to more conclusions than that but it's not a lot of assumptions it's just two fundamental laws of science right. if you want to use the broad term in order to believe there is no god you have to believe in a steady state theory an eternal universe you have to believe that uncaused effects which is in direct contradiction to all laws of logic and science mm -hmm are in fact the foundation of all created order and matter. Responsible you, for everything, yeah. Yeah, you have to believe that um, the law of atrophy doesn't exist because nature does not produce order over time, it produces disorder. Right. And then of course you have to assume that um, purposelessness, that our reason for being here is just a fluke. Four assumptions as opposed to two, and the four assumptions that you have to make in against God actually end up uh, conflicting with science, whereas these two just allow it. Yeah. So the concept of God is, an, is a rational one, but don't misunderstand. I'm being a little Frank Turkey here. We're not arguing for the Christian God, the Muslim God, the Jewish, whatever. We're arguing for the concept of an absolute well, God. Real yeah. quick, two yeah. things. The other thing the atheist has to deal with is who is Jesus Christ? Because... He claimed to be God and proved it by rising from the dead. Secondly, um, we're told that uh, the unrighteousness of men is manifested because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it to them. So yeah, I think it takes a lot more faith to be an atheist. Yeah, than a believer. So, <laughs> that's yeah. a statement, yeah. very true. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, we'll see you back on Monday. Be praying for Adrian. He's going on a mission trip, so I'll be hosting with you on Monday. Have a great weekend. God bless you guys. Thank you for being part of A Reason for Hope. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.